Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. You know, it's just undeniable that direct primary care has scaled now to serve 25 million members. I'm one for five years, and I'm one because so many of us win in this model. Employers, number one, can see an immediate one-on-one ROI, which means it's free, return on investments 101. And the largest study ever, done by one of our guests, Randa Deaton at PBG&H, shows as much as a 10 to 1 ROI, including softer costs like retention, lower absenteeism, workers' comp plummeting, and presenteeism dropping the so-called resigned worker. They renew also employers with DPC providers at the 98 to 99% rate, which is about as good as perfect. Docs also are the second winner. Their satisfaction scores go into the 90s. Burnout melts away with this ERHR ridiculous mandate disappearing and going away because you don't need to code anymore and bill anymore. Number three, consumers. Health improves with proactive care for chronic and docked in a pocket 24-7 for the rest of us. And meds are available by three mail order pharmacies on this show, probably more that we don't know about, at one to four pennies a pill, which is one to four bucks every 90 days, every fill. You don't need a PBM when you have a fill rate at four bucks every 90 days tops. So they are scoring these programs in the 90s as well. Four to five stars on Google. The worst I've seen is an 88 about double hospitals when they're published. Shareholders number four see EBITDA rise with the number two cost center finally under control after decades of running rampant, which drives market value. EBITDA is a complete driver of that. And number five, costs drop 20 to 60% over time. Case studies galore are piling up for mega and many employers. It's now fact jack. We've had half a dozen on this show, employers, including a poor school district, and 130 others followed it, billion-dollar aerospace company, a top 10 home health contractor, cable TV companies, hotel chains. They laugh when I ask if they would ever go back. Number six, communities win. Savings in Orlando, for example, have transformed two school districts, matching the poorest with the richest district in matriculation rates for college. Also, employees spend locally to save when the deductibles and co-pays go away. It's about, we calculate 20 million for every thousand employees, or they reduce credit card debt, or they take a first ever trip, or they move to a better neighborhood and go to a better school. And number seven, population health outcomes increases. Again, there's just no debate. Easier access to a PCP isn't always gonna be a plus, always a winner. It's otherwise known as better outcomes, measurable. So forget the silly triple aim. We see seven aims accomplished in this direct model universe. Tune in to meet those players making all this happen right here. 
We all live in a future where everyone wins. Today's guest has been a long-term listener, and I've been a fan of his since he got on LinkedIn. Preston Alexander is a healthcare entrepreneur, and he's currently serving as an advisor and consultant to healthcare companies of all shapes and sizes. He ran a $100 million global portfolio for a medical device company, now has his own, lives in Atlanta, Georgia with his wife and two daughters. And when he has time, he goes to rock climbing. Preston, welcome to the show. Hey, Ron, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, glad to have you too. You know, I had to hang up my patons and rock climbing gear because I just hit a certain age and it wasn't making sense anymore. <laughs> now when I climb on, it's just because my girlfriend asked me. That's the only reason. <laughs> nice. That's uh, fair enough. Yeah. So any comments before we get going, Preston? Um, well, you know, just a big fan of what you do. And I think that everything you said on this intro here is is true. I mean, what better way to improve the health outcomes, access, affordability, quality of uh, the American people than having direct access to primary care doctors who have the time, resources, bandwidth, uh, and wherewithal to deliver the best care that they can. I mean, we know from other countries that overemphasis on primary care helps save lives, improves outcomes for people and in way more metrics than you suggested, like with our triple aim. And, um, I, you know, just love what that world has brought and love what you do by highlighting it and some of the work that all, the, you know, is going on in DPC. So appreciate that. Sure. Well, uh, thank you. I can't not figure out a couple of things. Number one, why people still think it's a mystery. Like the 25 million people are members is a real plus. I mean, that's huge. That's like as many subscribers as there are at Disney. I mean, it's a big number, but that not everybody's doing it. I don't get it. What is holding up the rest of the economy from figuring this natural out? I think so much of it is just fear-based and momentum-based. You know, like how do we access our insurance or our care historically it's through insurance models or so employer or, you know, for other folks, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and to have someone go to a person from an individual perspective and say, give up your insurance or use insurance a little bit differently. Like if you have a catastrophic plan um, only, they're going to be like, I can't how like you've lived your whole life like that. And it's hard to overcome, I think, that recalcitrant momentum. And similarly from employers, you know, it's so easy to just say, I don't, you know, I don't want to be responsible. We've always done it this way. And even in the face, and we, it's changing. I mean, you see it, there's so many members, but even from that corporate level where it's, to me, so compelling in some of these state plans and the amazing improvement they've had with the right plans and direct primary care, it's still such a big hill for them to, I think, just mentally climb. And it's just going to be one of those things, keep chipping away at it and prove those outcomes, get more word of mouth around it and see the results. And I mean, we're going to see things start to change more rapidly, I think, in the near future. 25 million is my count. I get 2 million off of consumers, another 23 million off of large employers and people serving them just based on the people on my show. What I hear the most in terms of the objection is, well, you probably need to keep a catastrophic, the old plant in case of the big, scary emergency. So I call it the cancer, cardio, car accident. Mm -hmm. And I was responding to somebody today on LinkedIn. No, no, you can have a catastrophic plan added to DPC. Large employers do it. They just add a, 
the stop loss, but individuals can do it if they add one of these health ministries to cover the big, scary stuff. Yeah. So I've, I've been five years naked, if you will. And I can't imagine going back and spending double what I'm spending now and having co-pays and deductibles. And now I need a doctor. I just pick up my phone and I text, you know, right. or if I need a lab or if I need a chiropractic, it's all free. And it's all covered for under 450 bucks a month. I'm not looking forward to getting Medicare. Well, what do you see as the big problems out there in the world of healthcare that you're trying to solve with your various comments that you like to make? Oh, man, uh, we can go all day about the problems that are out there. But, you know, the things that I often come back to are one of the main things is is access and as simple and, and basic as it sounds. And there's, you know, there's shades to it. But it's just how do we access the care that's out there for everybody and scale those sort of, you know, different opportunities to access high quality care because we've heard it for so long. America has one of the best health care systems in the world. And, and I mean, I think that's completely untrue to a degree because yes, some people are able to access some of the best care doctors, medical facilities, technology advancements in the world for sure. But the fact that it's limited to so few people to really have that access is to me the biggest and most glaring problem that we have. So that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about from a systems perspective, from an individual perspective. You know, we have so many wonderful assets. How do we recreate the models and stitch together the existing infrastructures that we have? to allow everyone the same high level of access to the high quality of care. And so, you know, I write about that. I consult with a lot of startups and digital health companies around it who are trying to kind of push their way in and create solutions to scale access, quality, affordability. Um, and it's to me, the, the, one of the quintessential issues that we need to solve is if I'm a wealthy person in a, you know, urban area with, three leading hospitals and an academic medical center. And I have four doctor buddies and can text them and, you know, they can squeeze me in or whatever. Well, how do we replicate that exact same experience to someone who lives in rural Georgia with a shuttered hospital with limited transportation um, with, you know, fixed income, you know, maybe, maybe worse off than a fixed income. Um, you know, how do we make, it, the same healthcare experience for both individuals. That's the crux to me of the issues. Yeah, we're very similar. My approach is that we have uninsured, it always ranges around 20 to 25 million, but functionally uninsured, I think can easily, you can make an easy case for double that where people have insurance, they can't afford to use it. Yeah. We had a school district on that had a third of their employees that just couldn't afford it. So why invest in the premium when you, the deductible is so high? that any type of serious accident would bankrupt the family. Mm -hmm. Functionally uninsurance is basically, I think the biggest problem in America. But so what is the solution to giving that person in Georgia and rural Georgia, the equal access to care that the person in the big city has with the big employer? Ooh, that's a good, hard question. If I'd answer that question, I mean, we'd all be sitting pretty right now, kind of sipping Mai Tais on the beach. But, um, I, you know, I think one of the, the ways that we to address it is sort of just reimagining the paradigms from a financial perspective. 
and also from a delivery perspective. And I mean, part of what you do and the drum you beat all the time with direct primary care, I mean, that's a big part of the answer is that if we looked at what we talk about when we talk about access or, or opting in or what the needs are, you know, what the issues are, we talk about chronic care, going to an emergency room, you know, we're talking about uncontrolled diabetes, which falls under chronic care, multiple conditions. Those issues, you know, a lot of the time can be managed effectively and solved by proliferating primary care and primary care access. Now, part of that gets tied to, you know, it's different, but part of it for DPC versus other things, but it gets tied to reimbursement models because the lowest, well, you know, one of the lowest reimbursed specialties is primary care and reimbursements just get worse as you go to rural areas. And as you go down the, you know, whatever you want to call it, but go down to like Medicaid dollars. So you're disproportionately negatively impacting people who need that type of care the most. So you know, one way to address it is, you know, the way that's the worst way in a lot of ways is to say we need policy change. Like Georgia didn't expand Medicaid and how ridiculous is that? They had free money to help people who needed the most help. We can start to shift or if it's possible to shift those reimbursement models to over incentivize something like primary care for Medicaid dollars, you know, that really starts to change, I think, what is possible. And then we we obviously need to leverage the technologies that are out there. There's no reason we need to talk about telehealth anymore. It's just called healthcare. You can do it over the phone, like right. You can text your primary care doctor. Our financial models haven't caught up to the fact that we just need human-centered, human-designed care delivery with how people live their lives generally. We effectively deliver and receive care in an antiquated system based on sort of an industrialized, you know, 1800s model where it's like, well, you have to be there physically in person, go to the industrial centers, and that's just not going to cut it anymore you know, with the distributed society. So how do we recreate the financial designs, implement the proper human-centered design models, and really start to shift the systems to in help people be healthy, remain healthy, or get back to health where they are with what they have? All right. Well, let's shift gears and talk about hospital finance. What is the most common myth you think people have about that hospitals are currently losing money? Do you believe that's true? I think some hospitals, yes. Like when I talk about hospital finance, I always like to caveat, like there's two different realms that we're talking about. Like I mentioned rural Georgia a lot because I'm from Georgia. So if I talk about like, you know, Albany Medical Center or like a, a hospital that went out of business a few years back in Sparta, Georgia, like those hospitals are far different than like Ascension, for example, multi-state health systems, vertically integrated, you know, IDNs. Um, so when we talk about rural health, yeah, humongous, huge issues. And again, it goes back to the payer mix, the reimbursement models, how many beds, the access, how long they have to stay open. But when we talk about health systems, I mean, no, they're fine. Like that's the biggest misconception is because we we open our Becker's emails and our fierce fi like finance, and all we see is like you know two billion dollar negative two billion in net income. It just occurred to me one day, I'm like, this can't, that's too much money. I was like, that's too much money to lose. That's not real. 
And I just opened up audited financial statements and looked down and saw, okay, you know, 1.8 billion were from unrealized investment losses. So yeah, the stock market did crummy. So, you know, income did poorly. And then you just go down a little further and you say, oh, look at that cash, you know, cash flow, a billion dollars, you know, positive. And, you know, I was just like, this is silly. We're just stopping at these net income dollars and not really looking at the true financial position of these giant health systems with, you know, billions in assets and property paying no taxes, et cetera. Yeah, because you listen to this show, you know that when the CARES Act went through and basically a Marshall plan went into the coffers of these hospitals, it turned out to be a big head fake. They weren't in trouble. I mean, the rurals, yes, but the megas were not in trouble. The basically a doubling of their asset base that's used to acquire physicians. And they went on a buying spree and they bought individual practices at a record pace the last two years. We know 110,000 the first year. We don't know how much they bought the second year of the pandemic, but it's a lot. And the bellwether I've always used is HCA because it's for-profit. They don't get any of the tax breaks that the they say I like to call them non-for-taxes who don't pay a dime. And they turned all their money back for the CARES Act. They had a $3 billion profit this year so far. So if the for-profits are making money, the nonprofits have to be making money with gigantic tax breaks. Yeah, I mean, this it's an interesting topic, too, to get into like charity care and the tax breaks, because if you actually look at some of these health systems, um, there was a study that came out couple of years ago, maybe, or maybe just a year ago. And it turns out that for-profit healthcare systems are often providing more charity care than non-profit health systems. And you're like, how can that possibly be? The purpose of not paying any taxes is to provide charity care. And we include, you know, they include shortfalls from Medicare and Medicaid, which, you know, is a whole different sort of ball of wax argument. And, um, you know, yeah, HCA and, and returning, you know, some of the CARES Act money or all the CARES Act money. I mean, you know, there's still things that HCA is doing that is clear that it's a for-profit healthcare system and, and, you know, money is the main goal. But it's sort of, you know, I talk about HCA and Tenant and some of the for-profit ones sometimes, but I think, yeah, the, the more interesting sort of conundrum, dark waters are in these nonprofit health systems. And some of the nonprofit health systems one that had a whole expose written about it recently, you know, in North Carolina, is that it's actually the hospital authority is run by the counties there. So they actually own property, collect tax revenue on some of their properties and pay no taxes simultaneously. And it's just sort of a wild, how are we letting these giant health systems that have monopolies over these markets make so much money and we just sort of happily call them nonprofits when yeah, maybe they're not distributing those profits to shareholders, but they are distributing them internally at incredibly high dollar values. Yeah, Gibai, who's a former guest, a study for John Hopkins, I think the nonprofit charity rate when it got down to actual dollars, not fake dollars, was 1%. I think the for profits was 2 to 3%. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. And I mean, that's a big, I think, misnomer too when we talk about charity care. I mean, it's based on charges that the hospital bills. I mean, it's the, they, they redid the charity care calculation recently. And basically if you can, if you make up higher numbers, say your MRI, you say it, you know, I build $1,200 for it, even though I know I'm not going to get $1,200. The way that the calculation runs, is it going to show that I provided more charity care? 
when the cost of that MRI, I mean, you know, Wells, you know, cost me a hundred bucks or whatever, but my markups show this overinflated charity care provision. They charge it out on a tax basis to the retail rate, but they don't ever get that retail rate. Right. So what kind of things are bugging you these days? If you could wave a magic wand, what's the key problem you would solve if you were king for a day? <laughs> I mean, if I were king for a day and I could make some things stick, I would upend the you know financial reimbursement models that we have in this country. I think that's like where I would go focus on because you know, like it or not, society at large, you know, we're pretty financially driven. And I forget who said it, someone much smarter than me, but it's like, you know, you show me in the incentives and I'll show you the, the activities or the actions. And our financial incentives are just so upside down with what healthcare should be. You know, you fee for service system, even value-based care, which is just like fancy fee for service. We're just attacking the problem the wrong way. And actually someone commented on a post today and I totally agreed with them talking about some financial performance of Intermountain Healthcare. And she was like, who cares? What was their quality? What were their outcomes? You know, they're providing good care for patients. And I was like, I agree with you, but we don't talk about that. No one, except for internally within the ranks of clinicians and health, you know, other healthcare um, professionals, all we see is like, you know, oh, they posted this loss or, oh, Mayo launched a venture fund with a hundred million dollars as partnership with, you know, Bessemer or whatever. And it's like, okay, that's great. But why aren't we talking more about what really matters is because we have that financial drive. So if we're going to be that way, which we are, why not why fight it? We have to realign financial incentives for what healthcare actually needs to be and how it needs to be delivered and the quality outcomes that we need to have. All right. So we're going to ask a rubber meets the road question. I get my healthcare from Redirect Health. And I used to have Sidera for the catastrophic Redirect reprice themselves. And now they offer that. So I get all my healthcare the last five years from Redirect Health. I, I don't need any other solutions. Where do you get for you and your family and your people that work for you, your healthcare? So uh, I do not any longer have people that work for me, but for my family, we actually get a, I mean, we are on a traditional healthcare plan through my wife's insurance because she has a couple of autoimmune diseases and we are on some very highly expensive medications as a result of that. And so we are in a bit of a different kind of situation from that perspective, unfortunately. But I will say, Ron, maybe not on the course of this podcast, but other than that, I'd love to learn more if I can figure out a way to combine some of these better methods and means to have a better healthcare experience for our family, because we've just gone the traditional route based on some of those medical needs we've had over the years. Yeah, I understand. Well, that'll be a separate private conversation. Well, so Preston, is there anything I should have asked you I didn't ask you? No, I mean, I think uh, it's been great. I appreciate the questions that uh, that you did ask, and I'll just continue to be an avid listener and you know try to figure out the right ways to stitch together what is already out there and then say, all right, how do we scale this so that everyone can have access to it in a meaningful way? It's scalable because it's free. I mean, if it's a one-to-one -one ROI, that points out free. And if 10-to-one ROI, if that study is true and it 
we're talking about over 8 million participants in California in that study over a long period of time. It's the most comprehensive DPC study of its kind. 10 to 1 is like, I'll take that in my IRA every day, 10 to yeah. 1. <laughs> yeah, I would def- I would take that, yeah. Yeah, I'd take 100 much less 1,000%. Okay, so if people want to find you, Preston, what's the best way? Uh, best way is on LinkedIn. All my info's in there. DMs are open. I respond to nearly every comment unless you're going to be super mean to me because then I just like move on. But that's where I spend way too much of my time. So LinkedIn, Preston Alexander, I'll be there. And then if you could, as you know this question, fly a banner overhead with one message for America, what is that? Healthcare is already affordable. We're just doing it wrong. Yeah, healthcare's fixed already. All right, Preston. Well, we'll get you back and get caught up again soon. I I appreciate your time. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Ron. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.